0: There is power in understanding the science behind why we feel the way we do. Tune in for more only here on the People's Scientist podcast. You are listening to the People's Scientist Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist podcast for episode 123, where every episode, I arm us with some scientific evidence so that we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every episode. How are you feeling today? I appreciate you and the time that you are giving to me today. I hope that I can add a bit of interesting things for you to ponder during your day today. So, what are we going to talk about in today's episode? Well, I think the thesis statement or overall theme of my podcast has become the following statement that there is power in understanding the science behind why we feel the way we do. In every episode, I try to provide us with some science to understand why we may feel a certain way. For example, why do we feel jealous? why might we feel anxious why do we feel tired or unable to focus why might indoor plants help our air quality or our mood how things in our diet or our genetic history may impact how we feel so today i want to provide some evidence on how knowledge is power that we can understand ourselves a little bit better then we can have a target or a goal and that in itself might have a calming empowering effect I'll also give some highlights from past episodes and my favorite takeaways of how I believe understanding our brain and body might be able to help us feel better. But before I jump into today's topic, let's start off with our foregone fact where I share a scientific finding from long ago. Today, I'm talking about one of the oldest diseases of human history and maybe the worst dietary disease to torment humankind. This disease is caused by a deficiency in a particular vitamin that impacted explorers of the 15th and 16th century very famously. Can you guess it? That disease of deficiency is scurvy, which is a deficiency of vitamin C in our diet. A Mangio in the European Journal of Internal Medicine in 2011 provides the details on the history of scurvy. The first reports we can find on identifying scurvy can actually be found in Papyrus of Ebers in 1550 BC, where they recommend eating onions and vegetables as the cure. Scurvy was very commonly reported in explorers hundreds of years ago as obtaining sources of vitamin C such as fruits and vegetables was difficult out at sea for months at a time. The first official description of scurvy came from Hippocrates, and scurvy was called ilios hematitis. Hippocrates identified the symptoms of scurvy as a mouth that feels bad. Gums are detached from the teeth, blood runs from the nostrils, sometimes ulcers on the legs form, and the skin is thin. In 1940, in the New England Journal of Medicine, Crandor and colleagues conducted a study that would likely not be ethical today. The scientists induced scurvy in a man in order to understand and have some questions answered about this disease, such as how long does it actually take for scurvy to develop? They knew from reports on vessels at sea during the 17th and 18th centuries that foods were often deficient in many vitamins, and scurvy could be seen as early as 60 days. But in this particular study published in 1940, the scientists provided all known vitamins at the time to a man- but the diet was specifically devoid of just vitamin C. Then the scientists observed him for nearly seven months, just to see what would happen. The study participant was a 158-pound male with no history of any medical conditions. He ate a diet devoid of milk, fruits, and vegetables. His diet consisted mainly of bread, cheese, meat, cornflakes, butter, cake. His blood was measured every day for vitamin C levels. They noted his blood vitamin C levels fell rapidly and measured at zero after 41 days of being on the vitamin C deficient diet. So it took 41 days to completely deplete his blood vitamin C. They noted a reduction in his basal metabolic rate, so his metabolism, by about 15 to 20% over the duration of the vitamin C deficient diet. So perhaps vitamin C plays a role in our metabolic rate. But he also lost weight on this vitamin C deficient diet, from about 158 pounds to 135 pounds by the end of the study. So that could also be a potential reason for his basal metabolic rate to have declined. By three months of a vitamin C deficient diet, fatigue had set in and continued to progress with time over the duration of the study. So vitamin C also appears to be very important for our energy levels and to battle against fatigue. The first obvious symptom was observed at 134 days. On the back of his legs, parafollicular hyperkeratotic papules emerged. So you might be wondering, what on earth is that? Well, surrounding the hair follicle, a very dark raised bump will appear. Ingrown hairs and dry skin were also noted at this time. These skin symptoms continued to worsen with time. Impaired wound healing was also noted. A general lack of healthy skin features. Now, they did not notice significant changes to the gums, teeth, rate of infection, or anemia. Following nearly six months of vitamin C deficiency, intravenous vitamin C infusions at 1,000 mg per day were administered to resaturate the body with vitamin C. Within 24 hours, marked improvements in fatigue and wound healing and skin health were noted. Through this study, the scientists could pinpoint the signs and timeline of vitamin C deficiency specifically. It took approximately 132 days before seeing the first signs of skin deficiency symptoms. Fatigue and skin symptoms were of the greatest note. And intravenous vitamin C very rapidly reverted these symptoms. It is so interesting the studies that they used to conduct in the early 1900s, when nutritional science was just in its infancy. Scientists didn't know if we actually needed vitamins, and so in order to prove this, they would provide a diet to people devoid of the vitamin, observe them, and simply see what happened. So there is a foregone fact on vitamin C deficiency. Now let's get into the core takeaways of today's topic, that there is power in understanding the science behind why we feel the way we do. The central theme of this podcast is that I try to empower us by understanding the science behind why we feel the way we do. And with that understanding, hopefully we can make better decisions to improve our health and our happiness. I aim to give us actionable information that's rooted in neuroscience. For example, if we are deficient in magnesium, how that may perpetuate the stress signaling in the brain. And if we drink too much alcohol, how that may cause rebound hyperexcitability in some brain regions and Therefore, increase feelings of anxiety. How using the techniques of affect labeling can help us gain control of our negative emotions. Scientists have conducted clinical trials indicating that aiming to empower patients with education on their physiology and psychology can indeed further improve their health measures versus standard of care. So in this episode, I will pull from my previous episodes to discuss what is happening in our brain when we might battle with anxiety, anger, jealousy, or why we may feel a certain way when we scroll through social media. I hope that this knowledge can help remove the self-blame that we may feel, and instead that it can give us an understanding and a plan or target to improve our well-being. Now, let's get into those scientific details. First, let me provide some evidence to support my notion that understanding the science can actually have a positive impact on our health. Barbosa in the journal Patient Education and Counseling in 2021 published a review on how empowering the patient through education on their medical condition can be a very effective strategy to enhance patient health outcomes. For example, Barbosa includes several clinical trials in this review in which patients were provided education in order to gain a better understanding as to what was happening in their brain or body, and knowledge on how to make positive behavioral changes based on that information. For example, a clinical trial was published in the journal JAMA in 2019 by Seon Oria and colleagues. The scientists aimed to see if educating the patients on diet, exercise, their physiology, and the science behind their behaviors if that would be superior to advice on diet alone. So 6,874 men and women living with metabolic syndrome were recruited. Metabolic syndrome is a combination of risk factors that places an individual at a higher risk for heart attack, stroke, kidney disease, and more acute events. An individual diagnosed with metabolic syndrome may have a large waist circumference, specifically greater than 35 inches for women or greater than 40 inches for men. People living with metabolic syndrome may have high fasting blood glucose, high blood pressure, and high fasting triglycerides. Now the participants in this study were instructed to follow a reduced calorie Mediterranean-style diet and were provided olive oil and nuts to help complement the diet. By the way, I dedicate an entire episode to the Mediterranean diet in episode 51 if you want to go back and give that a listen. Now half the participants were additionally provided education on their health, the physiology, and behavior modification training. The scientists noted that individuals who received the education more closely adhered to the diet regimen versus the control group. They measured adherence to the diet on a 14-point scale. Now, those in the education group received on average an adherence score of 13.2 out of 14, so nearly perfect, whereas those in the control group that did not receive the additional educational training had a lower adherence score of 11.1 out of 14. So this educational training on their physiology and behavior seemed to improve their adherence to this new healthy routine. Then in the journal Scientific Reports in 2021, the scientists published a follow-up of the initial results with a subsample on this cohort. The scientists wanted to understand if impulsivity was linked to food addiction, a higher body mass index, or obesity... And if impulsivity was linked to depression. At baseline, they did indeed note that this association in patients existed. So, individuals that had higher scores for their impulsive behaviors were more likely to have a higher body mass index, were more likely to have symptoms of food addiction, and symptoms of depression. So, how do we know if we might be impulsive? Well, the UPPSP impulsivity scale is often used. So here are some questions often asked to assess impulsivity. You would be asked to provide an answer on a scale from strongly disagree to strongly agree. For example, with the following statements. I find it difficult to resist my urges for my cravings, such as for cigarettes, food, or beverages. I tend to blurt things out without thinking. I like sports and games where you have to choose your next move very quickly. I tend to not complete things that I start. I tend to lose control when I am in a great mood. When I feel bad, I will often do things I later regret in order to make myself feel better now. So if we tend to answer, agree, or somewhat agree, or strongly agree to those statements, then we may have a higher impulsivity score. Now, the individuals in the intervention group received and underwent individual interviews that lasted about 30 minutes, as well as motivational group sessions three times per month during the first year of the intervention. Essentially, the goal of these educational sessions was to increase self-awareness of our own personal behaviors, to understand why we may act impulsively at times, and to develop coping strategies to assist in those negative impulsive behaviors. So after one year, the body mass index reduced by 2% in the, in the control group that did not receive the educational training, whereas body mass index reduced more so in individuals that did receive the education. Their BMI dropped by 8%. Greater decreases in BMI were observed in individuals that obtained lower scores of impulsivity over the one year. Those in that educational group also noted a reduction in their negative urgency impulsivity score. Whereas the control group noted, no significant change. So this study indicates that educational training on physiology, psychology, and more specifically, impulsivity further enhanced health improvements and helped them more likely to gain a healthier weight. How about another study? Cortez and BMC Public Health in 2017 conducted a clinical trial in 238 participants living with type 2 diabetes. Half the participants were given standard of care as the control group and half the participants were additionally provided a patient empowerment educational training in order to increase their self-awareness, to enhance their knowledge of their physiology, and to motivate behavioral change. The participants following the educational training scored high on their measures of self-care, knowledge, attitude toward their condition, and empowerment toward their condition, after the educational training. So it indicated that this program enhanced their knowledge and gave them a better positive attitude toward their condition. But did this translate to benefits to their health? The answer is yes. Their glycated hemoglobin, or HbA1c, which is a long-term marker for blood glucose control, improved by 7.5%. In fact, it decreased from 8.1 to 7.5. However, the control group worsened by 2.5%. Their HbA1c increased from 7.9 to 8.1. The educational group also saw an improvement in total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, and their diastolic blood pressure. So this clinical trial indicates that empowering the patient through education, through self-awareness, and behavioral training can result in greater improvements to health. In the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health in 2021, the scientists gave a definition of empowerment that I liked. They define empowerment as a process that includes developing self-awareness, reducing self-blame, accepting personal responsibility for change, and improving self-efficacy. And this is all done with the goal of improving ourself. So essentially, these trials that I just mentioned are examples of what I try to achieve with nearly every episode on this podcast. I try to educate us on why we feel the way we do. What is going on in our brain, in our body, causing us to feel this way? How do our lifestyle choices, like our diet, our exercise, our life stresses, impact our brain and body? And I believe that if I can share that knowledge with us, it can be empowering. And our health can improve as a result of it. It gives us a target, and it gives us some actionable goals. Like that old adage goes, knowledge is power. Now let me give some examples from my past episodes of how understanding our brain and lifestyle may empower us. And I'm going to pick some of my favorite findings. Let's start by talking about something many of us may battle with, anxiety. In episode 112, I go into the details. Now, temporary fear or anxiety is completely normal, but if our brain is unable to turn off that stress response, it may lead to chronic anxiety disorders, like generalized anxiety disorder, is characterized by chronic, excessive, and uncontrollable worry about a variety of topics. This worry can very negatively impact one's life, one's sleep, relationships, work, responsibilities, happiness, health, and overall quality of life. Now, what is happening in our brain if we battle with generalized anxiety disorder? Well, imagine a sink or a bathtub. Imagine turning on the tap and putting a plug in the drain because you want to take a bath or wash something in the sink. So you are letting the tub or sink fill up. Now, oftentimes in a sink or bathtub, there's a small drain port, like a small hole near the top third of the sink or tub, which will allow any excess water to drain out so that the sink or bathtub doesn't overflow. Well, in the circumstance of anxiety, there is no safety drain port, so when the tap is turned on and left on, the tub or sink is going to overflow. This is similar to what can happen in our brain when we battle with an anxiety disorder. Normally, in our brain, there is a break, a drain port, or a process to resolve a stress response, but instead, in anxiety disorders, the stress signal doesn't stop. It just keeps building. It overflows resulting in chronic anxiety. Now let me get more specific. A great review was written by Martins and colleagues in 2009 entitled The Neurobiology of Anxiety Disorders. Now, Symptoms of mood and anxiety disorders are thought to result in part from disruption in the balance of activity in the emotional centers of our brain. The emotional processing brain structures historically are referred to as the limbic system, and it can include brain regions like the insular cortex and cingulate cortex. The hippocampus is another limbic system structure. It has tonic inhibitory control over the hypothalamic stress response system and plays a role in negative feedback for the stress circuit, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So the hippocampus is an example of that drain port in the sink because it can turn off that stress circuit in the brain. An evolutionarily ancient limbic system structure, the amygdala, processes many of our emotions including fear and how we respond to fear. Another brain region that has been elucidated more recently is the bad nucleus of the stria terminalis or the BNST. This brain region has been implicated in chronic stress as well as addiction. Now anxiety may be a result of hyper excitability in some of these brain regions where we may have too much glutamate and not enough of that quieting down neurotransmitter GABA. Now this may create an imbalance in the activity of our brain. So the big question, why does this happen? Well, it can occur from things like alcohol abuse, excessive caffeine intake, abnormal blood glucose levels from diabetes or restrictive dieting, not obtaining enough magnesium in our diet. Now, I speak about the importance of magnesium and its role in counteracting our stress response in our brain in the last episode, in episode 122. Now we might be able to counteract this stress response by inducing heat shock proteins to have negative feedback on the hypothalamus to reduce the stress response. So a hot shower, a hot sauna, hot bath, hot yoga might be of benefit in reducing symptoms of anxiety, reducing some of the causes such as lowering caffeine intake, obtaining food sources of magnesium such as pumpkin seeds, dark chocolate, flaxseed, and cashews, eating regularly and avoiding excess sugar, and making sure to eat enough calories to prevent spikes and drops in blood glucose. And interestingly, some preliminary data also suggests that following a ketogenic diet, which is lower in carbohydrates, modern protein, and high in healthy fats, may reduce excitability in the brain regions and improve measures of anxiety by increasing that quieting down neurotransmitter GABA and lowering that excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate. Now, the ketogenic diet was originally created to treat epilepsy in children about 100 years ago. Now, interestingly, epilepsy is also hallmarked with too much excitability in certain brain regions. So the ketogenic diet may work via the same mechanism for epilepsy and anxiety, as anxiety also is hallmarked by having hyperexcitability in certain brain regions. So if that neuroscience interests you, you can go back to episode 112. Now let me jump to another emotion. In episode 109, I speak on the neuroscience of anger. Psychologists have identified two states of anger, state anger and trait anger. State anger is something we have all felt. It is a quick emotional reaction that ranges from mild irritation to intense fury and rage. Even if we are the most laid back positive person, we could be put in a situation where all of a sudden we feel very angry. And that's normal. But by contrast, trait anger is a personality characteristic. We would call that as someone with a temper. It reflects the person's chronic tendency to experience anger frequently, with high intensity and for a long duration. There are psychological tests that psychologists use to assess if someone has a temper or trait anger. I found a couple example questions that they ask. For example, to determine if we have high trait anger, let's think of the following. How likely are we to think these things or feel this way? I feel infuriated when I do a good job and get a poor evaluation. When I get frustrated, I feel like hitting something or someone. It enrages me when someone says they are going to do something and they don't do it. I can't control my anger when I see others get rewarded for working less than I do. If we answer yes likely to these statements, it may indicate trait anger or having a temper. Trait anger consistently predicts state anger and aggressive behavior in everyday life. For instance, anger often comes out when people drive. So people with a temper tend to report feeling angry when they're driving and in more car accidents than people with lower scores of trait anger. Scientists have studied individuals with high trait anger, commonly called having a temper, to try to understand better what may contribute to us feeling this way. Why do we have a temper? They've realized that those with a temper tend to have bias in how they take in and process information, meaning that they tend to view the world and interpret what they see in a hostile, negative manner. Their perspective tends to be on the negative side. For example, someone with high trait anger or a temper may selectively see the negativity in situations and retell a situation with negative words, like, quote-unquote, that stupid person did this and that. So if you have heard, you have to change your perspective— This advice is indeed rooted in psychology. If we try to reframe our perspective and try to see the good or neutrality in a situation rather than the negativity, this can impact the story we tell ourselves and how we take in information and how we view the world. Let me give an analogy that was once told to me. Imagine you got a new car. Let's say it's a yellow car, and you're very excited about your yellow car. And now that you are driving around in your new yellow car, you are starting to notice any other yellow car that might be on the road. So now you are thinking more about yellow cars. You are noticing them more. But prior to owning this car, you never took the time to notice yellow cars nor appreciated how many there were on the road. Likewise, if we start to focus on the positivity in our life, we may start to see more positivity and good things around us. And that will change our perspective, our focus and the information we take in. We can also try to reframe how we process the information we take in. Instead of using negative words to describe what we see, we can try to retell the story in a neutral or even positive light. Now, of course, this can take time, but eventually it's all about changing our perspective from a negative one. This is one of the ways psychologists start in training individuals that have trait anger in order to help them gain control of their temper. Anger may also narrow our attentional scope, meaning that anger causes us to focus upon the source of our frustration leading to rumination on those negative thoughts. The lack of control to rid our mind of these thoughts is also another characteristic of someone with trait, anger, or temper. This is often due to a lack of effort or attentional control, meaning the difficulty in controlling what we give our attention to. Kelly in Psychological Sciences in 2013 described using functional magnetic resonance imaging of the brain that there appears to come commonalities in individuals with a temper, that they tend to have greater left frontal cortical activity that is associated with aggression. In contrast, in those with control over their emotions and lack trait anger, they tend to have greater right frontal cortical activity that is associated with an ability to inhibit anger responses. So how, I, how might we be able to improve our attention control then? How can we reduce our rumination on the negative things that make us angry? Well, we can try to train ourselves to focus on specific things. Like, are we the type of person that watches TV, scrolls through our phone, messages people all at the same time? Can we sit down and read a book for more than 20 minutes? Can we sit quietly in a room and focus on just our breathing for more than a minute? And back in episode 71, I talk about the neuroscience of meditation. In clinical trials where participants started doing meditative practice at least four times per week for at least 45 minutes per session, they noted significant improvements in their attention control and measures of mental health. And attention control can help reduce rumination on negative content or negative thoughts. And I go into detail on those studies in episode 71. Even sitting down and reading a book can force us to concentrate on something Things like TV, our phones, and computers pull our attention to so many different stimulating things that it may cause our attention control to decrease. So the short answer is if we want to improve our attention control, to improve our ability to reduce our rumination on negative, angering things, we can try to increase our attention control with meditation or reading. Essentially anything that will focus us to focus, that will force us to focus on one thing for an extended period of time. I've also brought up in a few episodes the skill of affect labeling and this is honestly my favorite technique and one of my favorite things I've learned through doing this podcast. Affect labeling can be beneficial for many if not all emotions whether they may be negative or positive. There is so much evidence that exists that the logical part of our brain can inhibit the emotional reactive part of our brain. So our prefrontal cortex of our brain is our higher order brain region. It is highly developed in humans versus all other species, and it is partially what sets us apart from other animals. The prefrontal cortex is responsible for decision-making, memorization, planning, fluid intelligence, like taking in information and creating new information from that. This higher-order brain region, the prefrontal cortex, can inhibit our emotional reactive brain regions, so the more logical approach we take to something, the more likely we can reduce our emotional reaction to it. And I've talked about this before in past episodes, like, for example, in episode 57, called The Power of Emotional Intelligence. There have been hundreds of clinical studies where participants have the blood flow in their brain measured using a technique called Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, or fMRI. And fMRI will give us insight into which brain regions are being recruited in response to certain things, like when we are angry about something, what brain region is involved. For example, Costa Freida in the journal Brain Research Reviews published a meta-analysis of 385 studies in 2008. Well, the scientists would induce certain emotions in participants like happiness or anger, then they would scan their brains to see what would happen. A lot of the times, brain regions like the amygdala, the mid-hypothalamus, and the periaqueductal gray would be recruited in response to these emotions. Then in many of the studies, the scientists tried the technique affect labeling. This is such a great psychological technique. Essentially, affect labeling brings on board our logical decision making part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, which can inhibit our more emotional reactive brain regions. So, affect labeling means that when we feel a certain emotion, we stop and we think and we ask ourselves, What emotion am I feeling right now? And we need to be specific. Then, once that specific emotion has been identified, like, I feel jealous, I feel aggressive. Then we can next ask, why do I feel this way? These questions are intended to help reduce the activity of our emotional brain region in order to reduce negative emotions. It is to help us gain control over our emotions by bringing on board that logical part of our brain. What's interesting is when we can finally answer, why do I feel this way? It now also gives us a target or an actionable plan. What was super interesting in these studies is that affect labeling reduced the power of the negative emotion, but it seemed to heighten the positive emotion. So if we are feeling happy or excited, and we stop and think, hey, I'm feeling really happy right now, then we ask ourselves, why do I feel happy? And try to answer that. It may actually lead us to feeling even happier. So this strategy of affect labeling is another common anger management strategy rooted in neuroscience. Now, it certainly takes practice to override that initial emotional reactive response. It is as though we have to train ourselves to a new reactive response. Like in the moment, we need to stop, take a deep breath, close our eyes, and ask ourselves, what emotion am I feeling right now? Why do I feel this way? And it is possible to condition ourselves to learn this new response. It just takes time and effort. How about another emotion? Many of us may struggle with social media use. It may make us feel a certain way. Perhaps we might feel addicted to scrolling through it. Perhaps it makes us feel sad or have a lower mood. Let's talk about the neuroscience behind why that may be the case. Perhaps this knowledge can empower us and help us to make better behaviors and decisions. Sherman and the journal Psychological Science in 2016 conducted a really interesting study in teenagers. They showed teenagers different photos on social media and observed whether they would click to like the photo or not and keep scrolling. At the same time, the scientists used functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, to study the blood flow in the brain, as this will give insight into the different brain regions recruited while the teenagers looked through social media. So what do you think the scientists noted? Well, the teenagers tended to like photos that already had a lot of likes, and they were hesitant to like photos with less likes. The scientists interpreted this as peer influence, that if others liked it, then it was safe or acceptable to like it too. They noted that when the teenagers viewed and liked these photos, there was more activity in certain brain regions like the visual cortex of the brain. So the visual cortex of the brain is certainly involved in our viewing of social media. But what was really interesting was that the teenagers participating also submitted their own photos to the experiment. When they saw their own photo with many likes, many brain regions were recruited. Can you guess which brain regions? Primarily brain regions involved in reward, pleasure, and motivation like the nucleus accumbens, the caudate putamen, thalamus, ventral tegmental area, and the brainstem. These are the same brain regions recruited during other pleasurable things like listening to music, exercise, caffeine, sugar, and even with drug intake. So viewing photos on social media can be very reinforcing, especially when viewing likes of our own content. So to answer the question, is social media addictive? Well, it certainly could be. Because of that release of dopamine, because of that recruitment of the pleasurable brain regions, social media might be very reinforcing for some. But social media may also have a downside because it has been implicated as a culprit of social comparison. For example, comparing ourselves to others. This can be in regard to us comparing our lifestyle, our opportunities, and our appearance to others. Haas in the journal Body Image in 2020 conducted a study to understand how social media use may influence how we compare ourselves to others on social media and how that might make us feel. The scientists recruited 763 teenagers and young adults. The participants were asked to report their time spent on social media and answered questions about their preoccupation with both general and appearance-related comparisons. The scientists also assessed symptoms of depression, social anxiety, and anxiety about one's physical appearance. The scientists noted that social media use was indeed associated with symptoms of depression, social anxiety, and appearance anxiety, meaning that the more someone used social media, the higher scores they had for how anxious they felt about their appearance, and had higher scores for symptoms of depression and general anxiety. Younger women tended to have higher scores and were more likely to be influenced by social media. However, young men also were influenced by social media in regard to feelings of depression, anxiety, and appearance-related anxiety as well. You see, it can be difficult for people to view social media without comparing themselves to what they see. But the more we do that, the more we compare ourselves, it seems the less happy we will be. And of course, how social media does not always depict reality, we may be comparing ourselves to something that is not real. So the scientists in this study report that social media may lead to anxiety because of the constant comparison of ourselves to others. But if we want to safeguard ourselves from this, we can try to attempt to not compare ourselves to what we see. and Perhaps that will give us a healthier relationship with social media. Olson in the journal Frontiers in Psychology last year conducted a study in 641 students to understand if their smartphone use was associated with their ability to be hypnotized. Now this was two interesting things to look at together. Why their ability to be hypnotized? Well, the scientists speculate that being hypnotized can be very similar to heavy social media use, meaning hypnosis and heavy smartphone use are both characterized by absorbed states in which we may lose track of time and we just become automatic in our responses to what we see. So the scientists repeatedly attempted to hypnotize the students. I mean, at first I was like, wait, is hypnosis real? Well, the American Psychological Association defines hypnosis as a state of consciousness involving focused attention and reduced peripheral awareness, characterized by an enhanced capacity for response to suggestion. So if that is the definition, then I personally think that hypnosis could be real. But anyway, in this study, the the scientists had the students go through several rounds of hypnosis to see who was easily hypnotized versus who was not easily hypnotized. Then the students had to fill out a questionnaire about their social media and smartphone use and how addicted they felt to their phone. The scientists noted a weak but still significant association that those who were more easily hypnotized also tended to report more feelings of smartphone addiction. The scientists conclude that this could lead to problematic smartphone use, that people may go into a trance of sorts and compulsively consume social media content without full consciousness or awareness. Why is this a problem? As I mentioned earlier in the episode, more or heavy social media use seems to be associated with more feelings of depression, anxiety, and anxiety about one's appearance. So the Simple self-awareness, if we believe we fall into this category, might be of benefit to us and gives us an understanding as to why we may be prone to the negative effects of social media. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army. How there can be power in understanding the science behind why we feel the way we do. I think self-awareness of our neurobiology and psychology can be very enlightening. Understanding what is going on in our brain when we battle with anxiety when we battle with anger, when we battle with jealousy, when we scroll through social media, what's happening in our brain? Why do we feel this way? That knowledge can give us actionable goals because the neuroscience and psychology gives us an understanding. It gives us a target. For example, with the social media, You know, why do I feel negative when I'm going through social media? Oh, well, it's because I'm comparing myself to other people. Okay, so maybe if I compare myself to less to what I see, maybe I'll feel better. Maybe I'll have a healthier relationship with social media. that's just an example of how I hope that neuroscience can help us gain better control of our well-being. And if I can have a positive impact on even just one of you listening right now, then I am a happy scientist. I know that I have improved as a result of this podcast, and so I hope you all have too. So please do feel free to go back to past episodes where I discuss a lot of different topics on nutrition, like how different vitamins can impact our mental well-being. I give some neuroscience-based strategies on how we can help gain control of our food cravings and how we can follow a healthier eating diet with neuroscience strategies. I give suggestions on lifestyle interventions for improving our health and well-being. Make sure to follow me on social media where I share some of the studies I cite in each episode. And if you liked the show, then please tell a friend, share it with someone, leave me a rating or review. And if you are feeling generous, I do not take sponsorship for the show so that I can stay unbiased, but I do have my Venmo and Patreon information in the description box if you care to buy me a coffee to say thank you for the show. I hope that you all have a wonderful, healthy, and happy week. And I look forward to meeting you all back here for another episode in two weeks time. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discussed are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.